We'll be reading this evening from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, considering just, just verse 13 to 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 25, just considering the first three of those verses. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy For I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who are you? Who are you is one of the most fundamental questions I think that we can ask about ourselves. There's a number of theories out there. Hume, David Hume argued that uh, for a psychological model that we are essentially a succession of thoughts and perceptions over time. Uh, There's also a physical view which locates who we are not in something psychological but uh, in something physical, in our our brains. What we are is most bound up with our brain. That is the essence of who we are. But I think at at a fundamental level, what we are as Scripture presents it, the most basic and fundamental aspect of what we are, as Scripture presents it, is holy. It is the essence of, I think, what it means to be image bearers, to be holy. Now, of course, this is something that was lost at Eden, but it indicated that we were something holy other and something holy special in creation, imbued with righteousness, with justice, with equity, modeled after God himself. And it wasn't just that it was modeled after God himself, but that actually it was only truly characteristic of us when we were in relation to him. And so I think Peter here is interacting with the reality of this sense of lost identity for pilgrims, those who were created holy but who have lost that in the fall. And he's now saying, actually, in the work of redemption... That's been rewritten. That's been restored. 
So Peter is rewriting, or rather using identity, the most basic aspect of who we are, as a means to exhort them and instruct them on how they're to live and continue about their lives as pilgrims. And I think initially we would say that this makes sense for a letter that's addressed to pilgrims, those who've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is unlike and unfit for creation as it now stands. If this is foreign, if this is new, how are we to live? And it's not just that it's a foreign land and that this is something new to us, but we still live here. And it's hard to be, as it were, in the days of Noah, in a a time where wickedness is rampant, where all we can see is the, the, the... Sinful desires and passions of the flesh that are prolific in the world that swirl about around us. Whatever are we to do? If that's what's here, what are we to model our lives after as those who have this restored sense of holiness foreign to this creation? So Peter here in in this excerpt of the letter is giving basic instructions for how we are to live. And he, and he does this in a way that they flow out of our sacred identity and are carried along or are motivated by hope in the progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at that this evening in three ways. First, God gives guidance, asking how we, are ought, to, we ought to live. Second, God gives identity, asking why we ought to live that way. And then third, God directs our gaze, asking how can we live that way? God gives guidance, God gives identity, God directs our gaze. So first, God gives guidance. Now Peter opens in verse 13 with the the first of three commands. He says there, Preparing your minds for action, by being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase that he uses, prepare your minds for action, is literally literally in Greek, um, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, what that would mean for the ancient was uh, quite clear. They wore long tunics, and when they would go off to war or they had a long, hard day's work, what they would do is they would grab the bottom end of the tunic, much like a dress, and tuck it into their belt at their waist in order to free up their legs, that they might go and run off to battle or do whatever kind of work that needed and required maybe a little bit more than they could without. The modern-day idiom of this would be, roll up your sleeves, it's time to work. So he's essentially communicating, prepare your minds for action. Get ready to go to war. Get ready to do a hard day's work or an arduous task. And he goes on to say, being sober-minded. So this phrase, sober-minded, is a phrase oftentimes used in, con- in distinction from intoxication or drunkenness. So intoxication and drunkenness indicates somebody that's not ready for action, somebody who is simply in the pursuit of pleasure, somebody who is not concerned with the need to be ready to, be, to go off to battle, who is shirking their duties. But to be sober-minded then denotes complete clarity of mind and preparedness for one's duty and action. And a mind unclouded, a mind ready to think on the spot. 
And so the question then becomes, how do you prepare your minds for action? How do you gird up the loins of your mind? By being sober-minded. By being of clear mind so that you have the cognitive framework that is effective and ready and anticipating action. And what is it that your mind is anticipating or so focused on in this state? In this state of readiness for battle? Well, we're looking completely at the grace that is being brought to us in the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just that it will be brought, but it is being brought. The word here conveys almost like a snowballing of events that reaches a climax, the full revelation of Jesus Christ. So the way that we then prepare ourselves for battle as it is in the days of Noah, in these days where rampant wickedness surrounds us, where that's all that we see whenever we go out into the world, is by fixing our gaze fully on the grace that is ours in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And what's he do for you? He came down from heaven to earth. giving up or veiling, as it were, his ineffable light and glory to take on human flesh that he might give his life as a ransom for your own, be handed over to death, and pay the debt that you and I deserve. And that doesn't get old. It shouldn't get old. And the reality that he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead? That's where our gaze is. And that's where our gaze ought to be. In verse 14, Peter then moves to the second command. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Recall here that Peter is writing to churches in Asia Minor that had been made up primarily of Gentile converts who had been converted from pagan, uh, pagan, uh, pagan religions. So it's not here that any kind of passion, Peter is saying, is wrong. Rather, the passion that was informed by the world as opposed to God. Passions before Christ. Passions before they received God's law and His mercies in Christ. This is uninformed desire. And on its own, it goes after anything that satisfies its thirst. It's like a vortex, sucking in everything that it possibly can and continuing to grow. This kind of desire is oftentimes coupled with avoidance of pain and the consequences of poor decisions. And you can see how that would be problematic for people who are living in this time of extreme wickedness akin to the days that Noah, Noah lived in. Life was, they might think to themselves, life was once so much easier. It was once so much more pleasurable. I didn't have this ostracism, this verbal assault and malignment and, and, and outsideness to the culture in which I lived. I felt at home. We weren't in the wilderness. I think it's easy to slip back into that. And I think that's also why Peter uses the passive form of the verb here for, the, for conforming. 
Do not be conformed, he says. The reality is that we are so often, whether formerly being converted from a pagan and unbelieving lifestyle or not, affected by forces that constantly press into us and that consistently assault us, beckoning us to conform to them. The customs of our culture, the norms we accept because it's what's we're, what we're accustomed to, what we see every time that we leave this congregation. And so in, the, in reality, this winds up going hand in hand with the command in verse 13. Instead of former passions and desires, instead of being fixated on those and what you know, the new thing that comes across each and every day, he says, pursue the new and proper desire. Let him be the one that your minds are fixated on soberly. Jesus. And this moves us then to the third command in verse 15 to 16. Instead of being conformed to your former passions, Be conformed in holiness to the one who called you in all of your conduct to be holy. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a kind of synthesis, I believe, between these commands then. What Peter envisions here is a people who are fully concerned with Christ, who aren't characterized by the pursuit of wicked desires, but who are completely holy in everything that they do. Holiness in this sense is separation from the ways of life of this age and its passions. It means to be like God, to be characterized by righteousness, by justice, by equity. It is to be wholly other from sinfulness that's embedded in creation here and now. It doesn't belong to those who are children or who are born again to a living hope to behave in profane ways or pursue profane things. That's your former ignorance. Instead, now you are to behave and pursue that which is characterized by the righteousness and the justice that is not like the things in this world. And this holiness is is, is entirely holistic. It involves every aspect of who we are. Every, Every aspect of our being, everything that we do, that we think, that we feel, that we desire. And so Peter can say, Be holy in all your conduct or in all your ways of life. Be holy in such an entire way that you are not fit to correspond to this creation, but rather instead fit and correspond to God's own nature so that you're set apart or righteous for God. So that you are, as it were, distinct from the nations, as Israel was to be distinct from the nations. Whoa. As prepared warriors with sober minds look at the grace that's ours in Jesus, don't desire bad things and be completely holy as God is holy and distinct from the nations. That's a heavy exhortation for pilgrims. Oh, it gets a lot heavier when you think on just how holy God is and how we cannot even begin to conceive of the distinction between His holiness, the magnitude and the infinitude of His holiness, 
and our apprehension of it. That's a heavy exhortation for pilgrims. How could we in the throes of life hear that as good news? How in the slings and the arrows of outrageous misfortune, how in our weakness, man, A lot of people look at Christians, a lot of people look at the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts and rule followers. They don't see any of the good news in it. And I think if we were to stop here, we wouldn't either. I wonder if a, a non-believer was sitting here today, they'd think this is exactly what I expected from church. Go there, feel like you're a bad person, like you can't measure up to God, which you can't. Be told what to do and what not to do, and that's that. That's it. Well, no, that's not it. The Bible does not run shod over your hopes and dreams and tell you only what you must do. It doesn't tell you not to have passion or have desire. In fact, before it tells you anything about what you should do, it tells you who you are, and it tells you what you are, and it tells you what you have. And this is our second point. God gives identity. It does not just tell you, though, who you are. It tells you who you are as the basis of the ethical exhortation that it makes regarding our conduct and regarding our behavior. In the previous point, we asked how we are to live. In this point, we're asking now, why are we to live that way? The answer it is wrapped up inexpressibly in who we are, in who God makes us to be, and in what he's, he's given to us. The first clue for that is, is really quite simple. It's found in the first point of our passage. Therefore, for this reason. So in light of all of the realities that he's discussed in the first 12 verses, these, uh, these exhortations on one, one's way of life are given to the people of God. And so the New Testament always speaks its ethical exhortations addressing conduct in light of the gospel. Because you are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Because you rejoice in the trials that prove your faith to be steadfast and, and draw you to Jesus. Because you love him whom you have not seen, and because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, as you look to him whom the prophets and the angels desired to know, Jesus, whom you see in clarity, in light of all of these things, hear these ethical exhortations. But it's not just that either, I don't think. Peter doesn't just set up the ethical exhortations that he gives regarding Christian behavior and tell them, be holy in all of your conduct because God is holy, basing it on everything that he'd said. He actually embeds the exhortation that he gives in gospel itself that reflects a rewritten and restored and rewired identity. And what identity does God give to you? 
What are the fundamental qualities that define who you are? Well, he calls you children in verse 14. As children, do not be conformed to your desires. So you're no longer orphans who are characterized by the passions, uh, uh, by ignorant passions, but you are children who ought to be characterized by proper desire because you are in a world of sin and death where holiness is not native, and yet you are children of the kingdom of God. And notice you're not just any children who ought to live as children, you are obedient children. So it's in your nature to obey. It's normal for God's family to obey God's commands, to, wall, to, to follow their father and his precepts, and to walk in a way that's marked by his character, that's marked by his law. So as obedient children. But it's not just either that as obedient children we live in these ways that correspond to our nature as obedient children. It is also, since he who has called you is holy, you should be holy. How can he who is holy call those who are unholy to live in holy ways? How can he who is holy call us who are not holy unless he who has called us to be holy has first made us holy? In order for him to call us and for us to correspondingly take up that call to holiness, to be, pattern, to be holistically pattern our lives in every way according to his own nature, he has to make us holy. And is this not what happens in your baptism? Was not the uncleanliness of your heart purified so that you were consecrated as holy unto the Lord? Is it not the same people God told to be holy in Leviticus 19 verse 2 and all over the Old Testament that had received the sign of circumcision indicating the cutting away of the impurity of their hearts? He tells people he's made holy to be holy as he, as he is holy. So living then in these ways corresponds exactly with who we are. So we, we, we actually don't have an identity crisis. We aren't wandering around in, as pilgrims in the wilderness confused about who we are. We know we're pilgrims, and so we do pilgrim things. And much better than this, the most fundamental aspect of who we are, that holistic, whole being encompassing reality as image bearers of God that we lost in the fall is restored to us. Holiness in God's image. That's who you are because Christ was cut off from you. That the sinfulness and the impurity of your heart would be washed by His, by his blood. in order that you might be holy and live in ways that correspond to that holiness. Why ought we to live 
in correspondence with these exhortations to be holy, to think on Jesus, to be obedient children, not, children not conforming to the patterns, of, uh, the, the ignorant pat- desires of our flesh. Because the most fundamental aspect of who you and I were created to be and the most fundamental aspect of what you and I were created to do is restored to us in Christ. Now, we've looked at how we are to live. We've looked at why we are to live that way. And now we move to our third point. God directs our gaze to consider how we can live in that way and why this becomes even more gracious to us. Here I'm relying primarily on verse 13. Look at the way that Peter sets this whole thing up. It's the first command that he gives. Okay, so he's going to make a list of ethical exhortations for the people of God to be guided by as they're pilgrims living in a sin-cursed world. And what's the first thing he commands them to do? Look at Jesus. It's the right answer, kids. It's kind of like a no-duh moment. Like, really? I have to look at Jesus, my Savior? It would be like if your parents gave you ice cream kids and they told you you had to eat it. This is actually really important. What, what better command could come first? And, and from this perspective, in terms of thinking about the, the, the commands that the people of God are, are, are commanded to adhere to in the scripture, is that heavy? Is that unfair? Is that just a list of do's and don'ts that seem legalistic? Look at your Savior. But this this exhortation, it's important because of how easy it is to fall into two particular errors. The first is because of how easy it is to be caught up with being intoxicated, with being unprepared, or with being ambivalent toward what we look at in the world. And this is the reality. When we live in a world of, uh, where sinfulness swirls around us like a tornado, where our hearts are programmed to conceive, uh, consume and feed the beast of desire, we can so easily forget what's important and be looking at the bad things that are contrary to God. I mean, think about it. How easy it is to be concerned with the wrong things. This is why the psalmist says, as we, I have hidden your word in my, in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's so easy to be discouraged by the, even the, the mountainous nature of the sinfulness that swirls around us and, and, and the, the power of improper desires. You look at the towering mountain that you stand before and you think, there is no way I can summit that. There is no way I can give up former desire. There is no way that I can be holy as God is holy. But Peter says, look at Jesus. That's the first error. It's so easy to be caught up or intoxicated. It's so easy to be debilitated with the, 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 the opponent that stands against us. 
The second is because we can also get caught up in everything that we know that we're supposed to do and supposed to be that we try and we try and we try and we try and we try to do it on our own. I think this is the case, especially if holiness is completely holistic and encompasses our entire person and our entire way of life, everything that we think, do, feel, and desire from on a day-to-day basis. We try and we try to be righteous, to be upright, to be godly, to be faithful stewards in everything that we do, to be faithful image bearers in everything that we do, and we just can't. The list of things that we want to be and do is so long, oftentimes, that it's just overwhelming. And not just the things that we want to be and do in terms of the way that we grow in our life of sanctification, but the things that God has called us to do each and every day of our lives as fathers, as husbands, as sons, as daughters, as mothers, as wives, as employees, as members of this body of uh, of believers. It's daunting. It's not just prohibition of what we should not do. It's commission of what we should do. That's what's daunting. Now, I was discussing the difficulty of this with a dear friend this week as I was thinking on this text and how hard it is oftentimes to lean into what God is calling us to do and not to feel discouraged by it. And as we were discussing it, we arrived at some helpful insights regarding the virtues of habit and and grit and how helpful they can be to building up these kinds of, uh, or adhering to rather, what Peter commands us to do here. You can make a habit of being in church twice every Sunday, of opening, your, opening and closing your Bible and opening and closing uh, each and every um, day in prayer, of having well-rooted habits, of having resilience that stands in the face of trouble, grit that continues when you don't feel like it, and sinfulness, and, and you feel the weakness of your sin. But then he said this to me. And I thought this was appropriate to share with you. Grit is good. I keep trying to hold it all together. I keep, I keep it to myself thinking, don't break. And that's okay, but it keeps me from utterly depending on the Lord and falling into a I-can-grind-this-out method. Then God just multiplies the pain till he breaks my pride and forces me to my knees. Sometimes we want to do it ourselves. Sometimes we forget where to look for strength. Part of me thinks that God doesn't break us. Sometimes we break ourselves by relying on insufficient means. You know what's so wonderful about this passage? Peter is writing to people who are discouraged or disheartened. They're tired. They're alone. They're struggling to not look back at the life that they had in Egypt and think to themselves, why did you bring us out? We had it good. They're struggling to be the pilgrims God wants them to be. They're struggling with the same thing my dear friend communicated, the impulse to just muster up enough strength and do it on your own. Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who at his weakest moment in his life of faith denied the Lord Jesus Christ and looked elsewhere, tells you and tells me, 
look at Jesus whom the prophets wished to see. Set your hope fully on the grace that is being brought to you and proclaimed to you and that climax is in his return when he comes again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to put aside your former passions? Stir up your minds by looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the graciousness of your gospel that it never leaves us without the power or without the the hope to live in ways that correspond to what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, we give you thanks and praise. And we ask that this week this, this text would seep into our hearts and encourage us in our weakness, lift us up from discouragement, and draw us even closer to our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.